Thanks, Pastor Travis, for leading us this morning. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Renewal. If we haven't yet met, my name is Pastor Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Renewal. And whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been with us for many years, we're glad that you're here, either tuning in online or also here in our sanctuary with us this morning. I was at a conference all day yesterday in, D in D.C., and it was my first sort of all-day conference since the pandemic began, and we were all wearing masks, and there was a lot of workshop interaction going on, and I felt myself just yelling like through my mask all day, and I feel my throat just absolutely shredded right now. So if at any point I lose my voice, Travis, you're just going to have to come back on up here and just switch on out for me. Okay. He's, gonna, he's saying yes. He's got thumbs up. Um, so I'm so grateful to be with you this morning, uh, to be part of this community of Jesus and, and opening the word uh, together this morning. So we're continuing our fall sermon series on Philippians, and we're calling it Philippians, Resilient Joy and Reconcil Reconciling Love. If you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you've missed the past few uh, Sundays, let me reset the stage a little bit before we jump into our passage this morning that Travis just read. So the book of Philippians is uh, a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi. Uh, now, the church in Philippi isn't just any old church to Paul. Uh, it is a place that's near and dear to his heart. About 10 years before uh, Philippians was written, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy and Luke and some other folks, planted the church in Philippi. The story of the beginnings of that church, you can read in Acts uh, chapter 16. So Paul considered the people in the church at Philippi to be not just um, distant acquaintances, but actually to be dear friends. He himself had even led some of them to the Lord. And even after Paul moved on from Philippi, after the Lord had called him to move to other places and start planting other churches and other cities, uh, Paul continued to return at least two other times to visit his friends at Philippi. And now Paul finds himself under house arrest, likely in Rome. His friends uh, from Philippi, from the church, sent a man named Epaphroditus with gifts to visit Paul, who was under house arrest. And Paul pens this thank you letter, this letter that we now know as Philippians, a thank you letter to send back with Epaphroditus to his old friends for sending along the gift and the news of what's happening back at Philippi. So this morning we're picking up the part of the letter where Paul is instructing his old friends about how to live together as kingdom citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. So with that being said, would you join me in one more word of prayer? And we ask the Lord to just open up the eyes of our hearts this morning as we come to his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, in you are the full treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes this morning so that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose your wisdom, peace, and wholeness in our lives. When we fail to keep your law, point us again to your son, Jesus. Illuminate our minds with the gift of your spirit as your word is proclaimed this morning that we may hear with joy what it is that you're saying and put it into practice in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
One of my favorite movies growing up, uh, when, back when I was in high school, was the movie The Dead Poets Society. Uh, some of you probably remember that movie. Uh, some of you weren't even born when that movie uh, first came out. Uh, but it was about uh, a New England all-boys conservative prep school uh, that was invaded by a flamboyant new teacher, a flamboyant, inspiring, energetic new preacher or new teacher named John Keating, played by Robin Williams. And through poetry, Keating inspires the boys to famously carpe diem, to seize the day, to see things from a new perspective. He famously has them stand on their desks so that they could see their classroom from a different perspective. As an impressionable young teen growing up in the Midwest in a very traditional conservative culture, when I first saw the movie, I too was taken in by John Keating. A funny thing happened a couple years ago when I rewatched Dead Poet Society for the first time in a long, long time. Now that I was older, but not to get into too many of the details, but re-watching it, I had the distinct impression that John Keating wasn't really the hero of the story, but instead he was just as much the villain of the movie as the strict headmaster or the overbearing father. He opens a new world to these young, impressionable boys, mostly through poetry, and he encourages them to shake off the shackles of tradition and to have absolute freedom. But he gives them little guidance on how to live in this new freedom when he's not around. What, what are they supposed to do with this new freedom that he's opening up for them? In one scene, the boys who are discovering their new freedom uh, have their secret dead poet society meeting, and it quickly devolves into drunkenness, lewdness, and ultimately racism. These young, wealthy white boys go to a literal cave full of historical Native American paintings, and they're grotesquely made up as stereotypical Indians. In a frenzy, they leave the cave chanting one of the most racist poems in United States history, the 1919 poem disparaging Africans from a colonizer's perspective called The Congo. You see, Keating gives these boys freedom without character. And it leads to disastrous ends in the movie. That brings me back to Paul and his letter to the Philippians. Paul, unlike John Keating in Dead Poet Society, wanted his friends to have freedom in Christ, but he also wanted them to have a character shaped by Christ so that they could follow the example of Christ. He wanted the Philippians to be both free and good at the same time. So here's the big idea for today's sermon. For God's good pleasure, Christians should work out our salvation, becoming more like Jesus. To this end, we'll look at what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation. We'll see that this is ultimately from God and that we should avoid the mistakes of Israel as we do this. So those are our main points this morning. One, work out your salvation. Two, it's God who works. And three, avoid Israel's mistakes. So first, what does it mean to work out your salvation? This is in verse 12, if you want to follow along. Therefore, my beloved, as you always 
have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not only has Paul's beloved friends in Philippi been doing a good job when Paul came and visited, they were being faithful when Paul was present, but they were also being faithful when, God, when Paul was absent, when he wasn't around. Human nature is to do bad things when nobody is looking. Children are more likely to disobey their parents when their parents aren't in the same room. Drivers are more likely to go beyond the speed limit and drive recklessly when a police officer isn't nearby. And this even goes beyond human nature. My dog Flash, uh, Shiba Inu dog, who some of you have met, uh, is the same way. And their breed is notorious for uh, obeying you when you are in their presence but the moment that you leave the room or leave the house, they're suddenly chewing on everything and they're jumping up on places that you're not supposed to be. So this goes beyond just humans. This is all of creation. We, we are people who, when our authority figures are not around, we want to immediately turn to disobeying them and doing bad things. But obedience, when no authorities are visible, when nobody is looking, is clear evidence of a desire to obey and submit to that authority. In the Christian context, an evidence of a, an evidence of a changed heart. When the boys in Dead Poet Society were on their own, things went downhill really fast. But it's not so with the Philippians. They're working hard to obey the scriptures and to listen to Paul even when he isn't around. And this is a sign of their sincerity and also of their maturity. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Paul's language here in this letter to his friends is to, in effect, say, keep working out your salvation. They've been in the practice of regularly working on their salvation and obeying Jesus and following him, but he wants them to keep up this pattern, to keep on pressing on, keep doing it. You're doing great. Keep it up. And we as Christians have to realize that this is actually hard work. The word that Paul uses here for work comes from the cultivation of the land. It comes from the farming contents context. And its tense implies that we are in this ongoing process of working it out. In effect, something like this, like a farmer constantly working the land, so too we should be constantly working out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's farm work to be done on the soil of our souls. There's tilling and watering and more watering and weeding and more watering and fertilizing and harvesting. I grew up among farmers. It's long and hard work. Farmers wake up really early in the morning. They put in long hours and they do incredibly physically demanding work. And likewise, there should be ongoing outward actions, hard work that matches the inward reality of being a son or daughter of the high king of heaven. So what does it practically mean to work out your salvation? Well, we believe it should show tangible actions, thoughts, beliefs, changes in attitudes, uh, uh, showing forth of the inward reality of a changed heart because of the salvation that we have in Jesus. It's like what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Healthy trees produce healthy fruit. When we see someone sacrificing their own desires for the desires of another, that's good fruit. When we see somebody loving God's word and digging into it, that's good fruit. When we see somebody repenting honestly and clearly for times that they've sinned, that's good fruit. When we see somebody committed to regular prayer, that's good fruit. When we see somebody committed to telling people about Jesus, that's good fruit. These are all ways that we are, as Christians, called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And pick up that that last phrase there, fear and trembling. One's posture before the God of the universe in this manner is to involve some fear and trembling. This is hard work, the the toil of working on our souls. It's serious business, and we serve a holy and righteous God whom we must answer to for the fruit that we have. Are we producing good fruit or bad fruit? So in verse 12, we have the hard work of working out our salvation in the way that we live. But here's the good news in point two of my sermon this morning. Even with our own hard work, it's still ultimately God who works. And this is in verse 13. We might be tempted to think from verse 12 that we just walked through that it all depends on us. It's all about what I do and my work. But there's a Christian tension to be held here. While we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we also hear from Paul that it is God who works in us and it's for his good pleasure. The glorious truth is that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us. He has taken our cold hearts of stone and turned them into hearts of flesh. He did the work first. But we don't just sit around and magically hope to be zapped into Christ-likeness. God changes us inwardly by his grace. We are filled by his spirit so that we can then become more like Jesus. There is a sense where God breaks in and he plants the seed of faith in us. And that begins to, as it grows in us, transform us from the inside out. Our passions, our affections, our day-to-day choices are recalibrated. We begin to more and more be able to die to sin and rise in newness of life. Jesus gives us new desires, new intentions, and a new will. And it's necessary for us as believers to grow in Jesus. He also gives us new power to work. The Spirit is powerful enough to change us, to carry us to new will, 
to will and to work in our lives. Verse 13 ends with both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The reason we are to work out our salvation is because it is God who works in us and ultimately he is doing this all for God's own pleasure. It pleases him to change us. John Murray, the Scottish Reformed theologian from Westminster Seminary, wrote about these passages, and he said, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. God works in us, and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. Let me say that again. God works in us, and we also work, but the relation is that because God works, we work. This is the tension that we live in as Christians. God works our salvation, and because of this, we keep on striving to be like Jesus. We don't wait around to be magically changed, but we get involved, we work, we toil. When my sons were younger, they were in a school where they had to learn Latin. And like uh, any language, learning a new language for the first time is hard work. Uh, And, you know, they didn't just pick up Latin at home. I didn't speak Latin. My wife didn't speak Latin. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the process of learning a language that you just didn't pick up by osmosis from being around your parents. That learning a new language is really hard work. There's tables and grammar to be memorized and long Latin words to be put into deep into the recesses of your brain. In the same way, having Christian character, becoming more like Jesus, looking out for the interests of others before your own interests, doesn't just happen. It takes the power of God, and it takes work. It takes study, it takes time, it takes rootedness and awareness of God's Spirit working, growing in your life. And it takes God's work first and foremost. Finally, Paul ends this section with a warning from the history of the people of God. He warns about the people of God who didn't do this hard work after he saved them, after he set them free. This is in verses 14 through 18. We're told to avoid Israel's mistakes. So verses 14 through 18 are basically more instructions for his friends about how they can work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And he doesn't make it easy. Verse 14, Paul says, do everything without grumbling, in one translation says, or complaining. (laughs) Could this be any broader? Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Do all things without it. It reminds me of an early episode of The Simpsons, the television show. Bart Simpson asks Homer Simpson, uh, uh, Homer, what, what religion are you? And Homer responds, you know, the, the one that's all with the well-meaning rules, but that don't actually work out in real life. Um, Christianity, that one. I know I grumble and complain too much. I'll complain about the weather. I'll grumble about Philadelphia, about Philadelphia sports, about my job, about my family, about my friends. I'm usually pretty good about keeping those grumblings inside my own head or only expressing them to my closest friends or my wife. But that grumbling spirit still has a hold of my heart. There's still work on the soil of my soul to be done. 
I relate to Homer when I read a passage like this. But what I forget and what Homer didn't understand was that I do have the spirit of the living God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, empowering me to change. To actually not complain about our lot in life is possible by God's spirit. Paul here is echoing commands from the Old Testament, things that were commanded to the people of Israel. Remember back, we just went through a series in the book of Exodus, and there's a a section of Scripture where God's people are homeless, and they're, they're wandering around in the wilderness, and God has been providing for them all along. Remember, he has granted them freedom, uh, and he's providing food for them and direction, but they're continually grumbling and complaining. They're grumbled against. Moses and Aaron. They complained about the lack of food and water. They grumbled about the food that God was giving them. Uh, They disputed between themselves and against Moses and Aaron, and so much so that they caused rebellion to rise up inside of God's people. And every time this kind of grumbling and disputing and complaining arised within God's people, bad things were sure to follow. Ultimately, the people of Israel's displeasure also wasn't just with Moses or Aaron, it was with God. They didn't believe that God had the best intentions for them. They didn't believe that God was ultimately in control. And this is an important distinction. Not grumbling and complaining has this specific historical reference to this wandering in the wilderness time. Sometimes abusive leaders or abusive pastors may use verses like this to control and manipulate people. You can't say that about me. You're just being a a grumbler or a complainer or you're just being divisive. When in reality, the person is just humbly confronting the sin of the abusive leader. Was it good for Jethro to confront Moses about his leadership? Yes. Was it good for Nathan to confront David about his sin? Yes. Was it good for Paul to confront Peter on his racism against the Gentiles? Yes. Sometimes humble, thoughtful, truthful confrontation of leadership is needed. And that isn't what Paul is getting at here in this passage. He's saying, do things without grumbling or complaining against God because you're unhappy with what God's doing in your life. He's simply echoing the warning to God's people that characterized them in their wandering. They were not trusting God. They were not being grateful for the gifts that God was giving them because they were not the gifts that they wanted and they weren't the gifts that were given on the timetable that they wanted. Paul leaves no wiggle room for this. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote this very simple truth. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We, we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. The law of the Old Testament and these kinds of laws that were passed down by Paul are really for our own good. The law teaches us what God is like and what is pleasing to the Father. And it acts as a mirror that we can see ourselves rightly in. When we look in a mirror, what do we see? 
We know we all grumble and complain. We want God to operate on our timeline and to bend to our own will. And we need God's grace in this. It's passages like this that highlight our weakness so that we might seek the strength found in Jesus. We're driven to Christ where we find forgiveness and strength through his spirit to keep working out our salvation. Paul adds a helpful phrase here after do all things without grumbling and complaining in verse 15. He says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Part of God's will for us Part of his desire for us to not to keep on working out our salvation, to become more like Jesus and to not be grumblers or complainers all the time is so that we will shine like lights in the world. It's so that those who don't believe in Jesus will look at us who do and say, why are they so kind? Why do they do so much good in the world? Why do they never gossip or say anything bad about somebody else? You see, our goodness is not just meant for us alone. It's also meant to be a catalyst for the spread of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. When we go into our workplaces, we ought to shine like lights in the darkness. When we go into our classrooms, we ought to shine like lights in the darkness. When we're at our school board meetings or hanging out in our neighborhood associations or being on our block, we ought to shine like stars in the night sky with the good character and the fruit of the spirit that comes from knowing Jesus. Are Christians typically known for our goodness, for not grumbling or complaining? Are you known as not being somebody who's a grumbler or complainer? Are you known as someone who tries to follow the example of Jesus and count others as more important than yourselves? I was so encouraged recently at our Leaders' Day event here at Renewal. For lunch, I was at a table with Ashley Song. Ashley is our children's ministry coordinator at our Center City campus. And Ashley is also full-time a school teacher here in Philadelphia. And it was awesome to hear about her love for her students. And she said at the beginning of the school year, she was feeling a little overwhelmed with all that needed to be purchased for her classroom in a Philadelphia public school. The normal things that teachers need to buy year in and year out are hard enough to come by. Uh, but they also this year had the extra expense needed to buy extra cleaning supplies and extra COVID era supplies as well. So Ashley decided to make a school supplies list on Amazon. She had put 12 items that she was not able to yet purchase on her Amazon supplies list. And she told a few renewal folks and she posted it on her social media account. She told me that within one hour, all 12 of those items had been purchased by renewal people. That's awesome, right? Within one hour. But the story isn't over. One of Ashley's school teacher friends who was not and is not a Christian uh, had also tried the same thing. She had built an Amazon list and shared it on her social media account, but she had nobody respond. She didn't get anybody pick up those purchases that she needed for her school crickets. 
Ashley heard about this and she asked if her friend would be okay if she told a few renewal friends and posted it on her social media account so that her renewal friends could see it. And her friend agreed. So when Ashley posted it immediately, most of her items were purchased and taken care of for her classroom. Ashley said her friend was so shocked by the response she said, your church must have some really great and generous people in it. I love this. This is being children of God, shining like lights in a dark world. I also love that this wasn't a formally programmed thing that we organized here at the church, but it happened organically behind the scenes where nobody was looking. Great things can happen in formal programs. But that this happened behind the scenes is exactly the kind of thing that Paul was hoping for with the church at Philippi. And by the way, Ashley told me that she and her teacher friends are already running low on supplies and will probably need to purchase new supplies soon. So if anybody would like to bless Ashley and her uh, teacher friends, uh, just contact me. My email's in the bulletin, and I'll be happy to connect you with Ashley as well and make sure that you see uh, lists when she posts them in the coming weeks. Beloved brothers and sisters here at Renewal, for God's good pleasure, we Christians work out our salvation, becoming more like Jesus. We are people made free to become more like him and to love our neighbors like him. Paul tells his Philippians friends that faithful Christians are innocent children of God who in the midst of so much suffering and so much evil and wickedness are to shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We shine like lights for the world so that they can see us holding on to Jesus. This is our calling. We're given Christ's righteousness because of his work. We keep on working for God's good pleasure, and we're able to shine like beautiful stars shining in the darkness in the midst of a dying world for God's good pleasure. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's our tradition here at Renewal to, after the sermon, take a few moments to quietly reflect on what we've just heard. So as the worship team comes back up, I want to uh, just all of us bow our heads and begin to reflect on the ways that we need that heart change and transformation. I want you to ask yourself, are you shining like a light in your workplace or on your block? Are you shining like a light for your friends who don't know Jesus? Or are you known as a grumbler and complainer, unhappy with the gifts that God has given you on the timetable that he's giving them to you? Have you been doing the hard work of working out your salvation with fear and trembling and holding on to Jesus, the word of life? Ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you this morning the ways in which that you need to grow and change and be molded into the image of Jesus this morning. So go to him in prayer just a, a few minutes.
Our Father, help us to be people who work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us to not be afraid of hard work, but to roll up our sleeves and to love each other well. May we love like Jesus loved, serve like Jesus served, and lived like Jesus lived. Help us to avoid grumbling and complaining hearts. Help me to avoid a humbling and complaining heart. Help us to be people empowered by your spirit to serve as your presence in our neighborhoods where we live. Help us to believe that you have the power and authority to take us and others out of the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place, living the life that we could not live and dying in sacrifice that we could not provide. We worship you and bless your name, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, the author and finisher of our faith, you who deserve all praise and glory now and forever. Amen. Would you please stand and join me in singing this final song of praise?